Happy election week, everyone. While we still do not know the final tally in many congressional district races, most of us already know how well our voting preferences performed in our particular state or district. But even if those results are in, if you live in a state that has been unfairly gerrymandered, your vote may not count the way it should, which brings us to today's case. Baker v. Carr from 1964. Last week, I read the majority and dissenting opinions in the case Rucho v. Common Cause from 2019. The majority in that case held that political gerrymandering of congressional districts as opposed to racial gerrymandering, which is prohibited by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is a political question, and therefore, since it's a political question, it's non-justiciable, or it's beyond the court's power to resolve. But the dissent argued that the court had already held apportionment cases were indeed reviewable by federal courts in Baker v. Carr, and twice upheld in Westbury v. Sanders and Reynolds v. Sims both decided in 1964. Collectively, these three cases are known as the one-person, one-vote cases because they were concerned with ensuring substantial equality of voting districts when compared to the actual population. In other words, if a quarter of a state identifies with party A, and there are four districts in that state, party A should have one district, not three or four. But the court in Rucho ignored these precedents established 50 years earlier in the Marshall Court's one-person, one-vote cases. Chief Justice Marshall thought that today's case was so important that when he was later asked which case he was most proud of during his tenure on the court, he did not say Brown v. Board of Education. He said that this one, Baker v. Carr, was because no kind of equality will last for long if it doesn't extend to the ballot box. And now, the opinion of the court in Baker v. Carr. Mr. Justice Brennan delivered the opinion of the court. This civil action was brought under 42 U.S.C. sections 1983 and 1988 to redress the alleged deprivation of federal constitutional rights. The complaint alleging that, by means of a 1901 statute of Tennessee, apportioning the members of the General Assembly among the state's 95 counties, these plaintiffs and others similarly situated are denied the equal protection of the laws accorded to them by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, by virtue of the debasement of their votes, was dismissed by a three-judge court convened under 28 U.S.C. Section 2281 in the Middle District of Tennessee. 
the court held that it lacked jurisdiction of the subject matter and also that no claim was stated upon which relief could be granted. We noted probable jurisdiction of the appeal. We hold that the dismissal was error and remand the cause to the district court for trial and further proceedings consistent with this opinion. The General Assembly of Tennessee consists of the Senate, with 33 members, and the House of Representatives, with 99 members. The Tennessee Constitution provides in Article 2 as follows. Section 3. Legislative Authority. Term of Office. The legislative authority of this state shall be vested in a General Assembly, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives, both dependent on the people, who shall hold their offices for two years from the day of the general election. Section 4. Census. An enumeration of the qualified voters and an apportionment of the representatives in the General Assembly shall be made in the year 1,871 and within every subsequent term of 10 years. Section 5. Apportionment of Representatives The number of representatives shall, at the several periods of making the enumeration, be apportioned among the several counties or districts, according to the number of qualified voters in each, and shall not exceed 75 until the population of the state shall be one million and a half, and shall never exceed 99, provided that any county having two-thirds of the ratio shall be entitled to one member. Section 6. Apportionment of Senators The number of senators shall, at the several periods of making the enumeration, be apportioned among the several counties or districts according to the number of qualified electors in each, and shall not exceed one-third the number of representatives. In apportioning the senators among the different counties, the fraction that may be lost by any county or counties in the apportionment of members to the House of Representatives shall be made up to such county or counties in the Senate, as near or as may be practicable. When a district is composed of two or more counties, they shall be adjoining, and no county shall be divided in forming a district. Thus, Tennessee's standard for allocating legislative representation among her counties is the total number of qualified voters resident in the respective counties, subject only to minor qualifications. Decennial reapportionment in compliance with the constitutional scheme was effected by the General Assembly each decade from 1871 to 1901, the 1871 apportionment was preceded by an 1870 statute requiring an enumeration. The 1881 apportionment involved three statutes, the first authorizing an enumeration, 
the second enlarging the Senate from 25 to 33 members and the House from 75 to 99 members, and the third apportioning the membership of both houses. In 1891, there were both an enumeration and an apportionment. In 1901, the General Assembly abandoned separate enumeration in favor of reliance upon the federal census and passed the Apportionment Act here in controversy. In the more than 60 years since that action, all proposals in both houses of the General Assembly for reapportionment have failed to pass. Between 1901 and 1961, Tennessee has experienced substantial growth and redistribution of her population. In 1901, the population was 2,020,616, of whom 487,380 were eligible to vote. The 1960 federal census reports the state's population at 3,567,089, of whom 2,092,891 are eligible to vote. The relative standings of the counties in terms of qualified voters have changed significantly. It is primarily the continued application of the 1901 Apportionment Act to this shifted and enlarged voting population, which gives rise to the present controversy. Indeed, the complaint alleges that the 1901 statute, even as of the time of its passage, made no apportionment of representatives and senators in accordance with the constitutional formula, but instead arbitrarily and capriciously apportioned representatives in the Senate and House without reference to any logical or reasonable formula whatever. It is further alleged that because of the population changes since 1900 and the failure of the legislature to reapportion itself since 1901, the 1901 statute became unconstitutional and obsolete. Appellants also argue that because of the composition of the legislature affected by the 1901 Apportionment Act, redress in the form of a state constitutional amendment to change the entire mechanism for reapportioning or any other change short of that is difficult or impossible. The complaint concludes that these plaintiffs and others similarly situated are denied the equal protection of the laws accorded them by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States by virtue of the debasement of their votes. They seek a declaration that the 1901 statute is unconstitutional and an injunction restraining the appellees from acting to conduct any further elections under it. They also pray that unless and until the General Assembly enacts a valid reapportionment, the district court should either decree a reapportionment by mathematical application of the Tennessee constitutional formulae to the most recent federal census figures, 
or direct the appellees to conduct legislative elections, primary and general, at large. They also pray for such other and further relief as may be appropriate. Part 1 The District Court's Opinion and Order of Dismissal Because we deal with this case on appeal from an order of dismissal granted on appellee's motions, precise identification of the issues presently confronting us demands clear exposition of the grounds upon which the district court rested in dismissing the case. The dismissal order recited that the court sustained the appellee's grounds, one, that the court lacks jurisdiction of the subject matter, and two, that the complaint fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. In the setting of a case such as this, the recited grounds embrace two possible reasons for dismissal. First, that the facts and injury alleged the legal bases invoked as creating the rights and duties relied upon and the relief sought fail to come within that language of Article Three of the Constitution and of the jurisdictional statutes which define those matters concerning which United States district courts are empowered to act. Second, that although the matter is cognizable and facts are alleged which establish infringement of appellant's rights as a result of state legislative action departing from a federal constitutional standard, the court will not proceed because the matter is considered unsuited to judicial inquiry or adjustment. We treat the first ground of dismissal as lack of jurisdiction of the subject matter. The second, we consider to result in a failure to state a justiciable cause of action. The district court's dismissal order recited that it was issued in conformity with the court's per curiam opinion. The opinion reveals that the court rested its dismissal upon lack of subject matter jurisdiction and lack of a justiciable cause of action without attempting to distinguish between these grounds. After noting that the plaintiffs challenged the existing legislative apportionment in Tennessee under the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses, and summarizing the supporting allegations and the relief requested, the court stated that the action is presently before the court upon the defendant's motion to dismiss, predicated upon three grounds. First, that the court lacks jurisdiction of the subject matter. Second, that the complaints fail to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. And third, that indispensable party defendants are not before the court. The court proceeded to explain its action as turning on the cases presenting a question of the distribution of political strength for legislative purposes. For, from a review of numerous Supreme Court decisions, there can be no doubt that the federal rule, as enunciated and applied by the Supreme Court, is that the federal courts, 
whether from a lack of jurisdiction or from the inappropriateness of the subject matter for judicial consideration, will not intervene in cases of this type to compel legislative reimportionment. The court went on to express doubts as to the feasibility of the various possible remedies sought by the plaintiffs. Then it made clear that its dismissal reflected a view not of doubt that violation of constitutional rights was alleged, but of a court's impotence to correct that violation. With the plaintiff's argument that the legislature of Tennessee is guilty of a clear violation of the state constitution and of the rights of the plaintiffs, the court entirely agrees. It also agrees that the evil is a serious one which should be corrected without further delay. But even so, the remedy in this situation clearly does not lie with the courts. It has long been recognized and is accepted doctrine that there are indeed some rights guaranteed by the Constitution for the violation of which the courts cannot give redress. Unquote. In light of the district court's treatment of the case, we hold today only a that the court possessed jurisdiction of the subject matter, b that a justiciable cause of action is stated upon which the appellants would be entitled to appropriate relief, and c because appellees raise the issue before this court that the appellants have standing to challenge the Tennessee apportionment statutes. Beyond noting that we have no cause at this stage to doubt the district court will be able to fashion relief if violations of constitutional rights are found, it is improper now to consider what remedy would be most appropriate if appellants prevail at the trial. Part 2. Jurisdiction of the Subject Matter the district court was uncertain whether our cases withholding federal judicial relief rested upon a lack of federal jurisdiction or upon the inappropriateness of the subject matter for judicial consideration, what we have designated non-justiciability. The distinction between the two grounds is significant. In the instance of non-justiciability, Consideration of the cause is not wholly and immediately foreclosed. Rather, the court's inquiry necessarily proceeds to the point of deciding whether the duty asserted can be judicially identified and its breach judicially determined, and whether protection for the right asserted can be judicially molded. In the instance of lack of jurisdiction, the cause either does not arise under the federal constitution, laws, or treaties, or fall within one of the other enumerated categories of Article 3, Section 2, or is not a case or controversy within the meaning of that section, or the cause is not one described by any jurisdictional statute. Our conclusion that this cause presents no non-justiciable political question settles the only possible doubt that it is a case or controversy. 
Under the present heading of jurisdiction of the subject matter, we hold only that the matter set forth in the complaint does arise under the Constitution and is within 28 U.S.C. Section 1343. Article 3, Section 2 of the Federal Constitution provides that the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority. It is clear that the cause of action is one which arises under the Federal Constitution, the complaint alleges that the 1901 statute affects an apportionment that deprives the appellants of the equal protection of the laws in violation of the 14th Amendment. Dismissal of the complaint upon the ground of lack of jurisdiction of the subject matter would therefore be justified only if that claim were so attenuated and unsubstantial as to be absolutely devoid of merit, or frivolous. That the claim is unsubstantial must be very plain. Since the district court obviously and correctly did not deem the asserted federal constitutional claim unsubstantial and frivolous, it should not have dismissed the complaint for want of jurisdiction of the subject matter, and, of course, no further consideration of the merits of the claim is relevant to a determination of the court's jurisdiction of the subject matter. We said in an earlier voting case from Tennessee, It is obvious that the court, in dismissing for want of jurisdiction, was controlled by what it deemed to be the want of merit in the averments which were made in the complaint as to the violation of the federal right. But as the very nature of the controversy was federal, and therefore jurisdiction existed, whilst the opinion of the court as to the want of merit in the cause of action might have furnished ground for dismissing for that reason, it afforded no sufficient ground for deciding that the action was not one arising under the Constitution and laws of the United States. For it is well settled that the failure to state a proper cause of action calls for a judgment on the merits, and not for a dismissal for want of jurisdiction. Since the complaint plainly sets forth a case arising under the Constitution, the subject matter is within the federal judicial power defined in Article 3, Section 2, and so within the power of Congress to assign to the jurisdiction of the district courts. Congress has exercised that power in 28 U.S.C. Section 1343. 3. The district court shall have original jurisdiction of any civil action authorized by law to be commenced by any person to redress the deprivation under color of any state law, statute, ordinance, regulation, 
custom, or usage of any right, privilege, or immunity secured by the Constitution of the United States. An unbroken line of our precedents sustains the federal court's jurisdiction of the subject matter of federal constitutional claims of this nature. The first cases involved the redistricting of states for the purposes of electing representatives to the federal Congress. When the Ohio Supreme Court sustained Ohio legislation against an attack for repugnancy to Article I, Section 4 of the federal Constitution, we affirmed on the merits and expressly refused to dismiss for want of jurisdiction in view of the subject matter of the controversy and the federal characteristics which inhere in it. When the Minnesota Supreme Court affirmed the dismissal of a suit to enjoin the Secretary of State of Minnesota from acting under Minnesota redistricting legislation, we reviewed the constitutional merits of the legislation and reversed the state Supreme Court. When a three-judge district court, exercising jurisdiction under the predecessor of 28 U.S.C., Section 1343 permanently enjoined officers of the state of Mississippi from conducting an election of representatives under a Mississippi Redistricting Act, we reviewed the federal questions on the merits and reversed the district court. A similar decree of a district court exercising jurisdiction under the same statute concerning a Kentucky redistricting act was reviewed and the decree reversed. The appellees refer to Colgrove v. Green as authority that the district court lacked jurisdiction of the subject matter. Appellees misconceive the holding of that case. The holding was precisely contrary to their reading of it. Seven members of the court participated in the decision. Unlike many other cases in this field, which have assumed without discussion that there was jurisdiction, all three opinions filed in Colgrove discussed the question. Two of the opinions expressing the views of four of the justices, a majority, flatly held that there was jurisdiction of the subject matter. Mr. Justice Black, joined by Mr. Justice Douglas and Mr. Justice Murphy, stated, It is my judgment that the district court had jurisdiction, citing the predecessor of 28 U.S.C. Section 13433 and Bell v. Hood, Mr. Justice Rutledge, writing separately, expressed agreement with this conclusion. Indeed, it is even questionable that the opinion of Mr. Justice Frankfurter, joined by Justices Reed and Burton, doubted jurisdiction of the subject matter. Such doubt would have been inconsistent with the professed willingness to turn the decision on either the majority or concurring views in Wood v. Broom. Several subsequent cases similar to Colgrove have been decided by the court in summary per curiam statements. None was dismissed for want of jurisdiction of the subject matter. 
two cases decided with opinions after Colgrove, likewise plainly imply that the subject matter of this suit is within district court jurisdiction. In McDougall v. Green, the district court dismissed for want of jurisdiction, which had been invoked under 28 U.S.C. Section 13433, a suit to enjoin enforcement of the requirement that nominees for statewide elections be supported by a petition signed by a minimum number of persons from at least 50 of the state's 102 counties. This court's disagreement with that action is clear, since the court affirmed the judgment after a review of the merits and concluded that the particular claim there was without merit. In South v. Peters, we affirmed the dismissal of an attack on the Georgia county unit system, but founded our action on a ground that plainly would not have been reached if the lower court lacked jurisdiction of the subject matter, which allegedly existed under 28 U.S.C. section 13433. The express words of our holding were that federal courts consistently refuse to exercise their equity powers in cases posing political issues arising from a state's geographical distribution of electoral strength among its political subdivisions. We hold that the district court has jurisdiction of the subject matter of the federal constitutional claim asserted in the complaint. Part 3 Standing A federal court cannot pronounce any statute, either of a state or of the United States, void because irreconcilable with the Constitution, except as it is called upon to adjudge the legal rights of litigants in actual controversies. Have the appellants alleged such a personal stake in the outcome of the controversy as to assure that concrete adverseness which sharpens the presentation of issues upon which the courts so largely depends for illumination of difficult constitutional questions? This is the gist of the question of standing. It is, of course, a question of federal law. The complaint was filed by residents of Davidson, Hamilton, Knox, Montgomery, and Shelby counties. Each is a person allegedly qualified to vote for members of the General Assembly representing his county. These appellants sued on their own behalf and on behalf of all qualified voters of their respective counties, and further on behalf of all voters of the state of Tennessee who are similarly situated. The appellees are the Tennessee Secretary of State, Attorney General, Coordinator of Elections, and members of the State Board of Elections. The members of the State Board are sued in their own right and also as representatives of the county election commissioners whom they appoint. We hold that the appellants do have standing to maintain this suit. Our decisions plainly support this conclusion. Many of the cases have assumed 
rather than articulated the premise in deciding the merits of similar claims. And Colgrove v. Green squarely held that voters who allege facts showing disadvantage to themselves as individuals have standing to sue. A number of cases decided after Colgrove recognize the standing of the voters there involved to bring those actions. These appellants seek relief in order to protect or vindicate an interest of their own and of those similarly situated. Their constitutional claim is, in substance, that the 1901 statute constitutes arbitrary and capricious state action offensive to the 14th Amendment in its irrational disregard of the standard of apportionment prescribed by the state's constitution or of any standard affecting a gross disproportion of representation to voting population. The injury which appellants assert is that this classification disfavors the voters in the counties in which they reside placing them in a position of constitutionally unjustifiable inequality vis-a-vis voters in irrationally favored counties. A citizen's right to a vote free of arbitrary impairment by state action has been judicially recognized as a right secured by the Constitution when such impairment resulted from dilution by a false tally or by refusal to count votes from arbitrarily selected precincts, or by a stuffing of the ballot box. It would not be necessary to decide whether appellants' allegations of impairment of their votes by the 1901 apportionment will ultimately entitle them to any relief in order to hold that they have standing to seek it. If such impairment does produce a legally cognizable injury, they are among those who have sustained it. They are asserting a plain, direct, and adequate interest in maintaining the effectiveness of their votes, not merely a claim of the right possessed by every citizen to require that the government be administered according to law. They are entitled to a hearing, and to the district court's decision on their claims. The very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. We finished the first half of this opinion including parts 1 through 3 of Baker v. Carr. In the next episode, we will begin with part 4 of the opinion, which covers the question of justiciability.